0: <sighs> do, do I really have to do this, Joe?
1: Yeah, I'm sorry, we have to.
0: Fine. I'm Susie On with the Curious City crew. Tis the time of year for snow, family, and food. So we dug in our archives, and what did we find? Some fabulous presents of the audible kind. Two stories of food from the past five or so years to fill you with pleasure from our hearts to your ears. First off, we seek out a recipe of yore. Monica Eng tracks down fried pheasant lore.
2: There were a couple things they did differently than other people would do.
0: And then, my friends, there's another story for you. We head out on a trip to the South and the West. Mexican bakeries are our next yummy quest. Sweet and savory treats baked for this time of year.
3: We have cupcakes, we have muffins, we have elephant ears.
0: Secret lost recipes and things that we bake. Liz Stanton starts us off right after the break. All right, all this rhyming's giving me a headache. We're done? Yep, we're done.
2: Curious City is supported by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com curiouscity Curious City today to get 10% off your first month.
3: At Rosie's Bakery on 26th Street in the heart of Little Village, warm, sweet air wraps around you the minute you walk in. Sugary Mexican pastries, colorful conchas, and savory breads line the glass containers. Baker and owner Fernando Vasquez started this bakery years ago, and today his two sons work alongside him. The bakery makes about 90 different items, everything from traditional pan dulce that's Spanish for sweetbreads and pastries, to bolillos, a traditional savory white bread, to custom cakes. Vasquez says no other bakery can match the flavor of his pastries and breads. It's a really special flavor, he says, that almost no one else
1: has.
3: Rosie's is one of about 10 bakeries in the area, with at least four others located just down the street or close by. And it's this phenomena that got one curious Chicagoan wondering, how do Chicago's Mexican bakeries stay in business with so much competition? And the question is an interesting one, since if you take a walk in a neighborhood with Mexican residents, you'll likely find a bakery, and usually more than one. It turns out, how they stay in business has a lot to do with both customers and tradition. Each bakery has devoted clients. Take Daphne Posadas who used to live by Salgado's Bakery in Albany Park. Her family moved to the southwest side, but they still make the 45-minute drive to Salgado's to get their bread. I always come here because I feel like this bakery is very family-friendly, and we just know everybody around here. The smell just makes it feel like even more friendly, and like, yeah. On weekends, her family gets together over hot chocolate and conchas, a round bread with a sweet topping. There are about 10 Mexican bakeries in Daphne's new neighborhood, yet... Here she is at Salgado's. In her bag, chocolate conchas for her mom. And her favorite, porquitos, a molasses-flavored pig-shaped treat.
1: Yeah, I um, remember when I was
3: little, we would come like in the afternoons, and you just like walk in the door, and like the smell just hits you. And it's like really good, and it just brings back like, a lot of memories. So Daphne's family loyalty is a clue. To dig a little deeper, I speak to Jaime de Paolo, executive director of the Little Village Chamber of Commerce. His office is in the busy 26th Street shopping district. And bakeries are an important part of that. Why? Tradition and culture, DePaulo says. Mexicans just can't live without their bread.
1: Well, a bakery is like an anchor to a community. There's there's, there's probably no Mexican home without pan dulce. If, if you walk into a Mexican traditional family, they're probably eating a pan dulce in, in the evening, having with a chocolate or hot chocolate.
3: DePaulo says this means there is a tremendous demand for bread in neighborhoods with large Mexican-American communities, like Little Village, where Latinos make up about 80 percent of the population. Each baker has a special recipe or baking trick that sets them apart. And this is where the loyalty comes in.
1: A, f- a family has their own favorite bakery. You just don't go to any bakery. You go to the one that you think is the best baker ever, right? And that could be the smell, the taste of the bread, the recipe.
3: Fernando Vasquez, the owner of Rosie's, agrees. But, he says, you also need to keep prices low to keep those customers coming back.
1: Good morning. Good morning.
3: The strategy seems to work. As for competition in the market, Vasquez insists each bakery has its own loyal
1: base. No, me
3: he says he doesn't see anyone as competition, because people go where they like the bread and are treated right. But in some neighborhoods in the city, things are changing. Take Pilsen, where rents are rising and demographics are shifting. The neighborhood is still majority Latino, but some families are moving away, which means bakeries are under pressure to close, move, or adapt. On one stretch of 18th Street, in a busy part of Pilsen, there are two bakeries just down the street from one another, Panaderia Nuevo León and Panaderia El Acámbaro. Each has deep roots in the neighborhood. Nuevo Leon serves up a wide variety of pastries, from sweet to savory. The owner, Abel Saucedo, even installed a special vent to spill the sweet kitchen air onto the street. His daughter, Dora Casas, and her husband run the bakery. She's noticed the change. We don't have that many Mexican families in Pilsen now, but we still get the visitors on the weekends. On a daily basis, that's, that's what's changed our biggest customers, the the Mexican families. So along with the traditional best-sellers of conchas and bolillos, they carry a lot of other products. We also have donuts, we have um, elephant ears, we have cupcakes, we have muffins, we have cookies, Mexican apple turnovers. Plus, vegan options of traditional pan dulce. Panaderia El Acámbaro down the street specializes in a large sweetbread called pan grande. Their namesake, the town of Acámbaro in Mexico, is famous for this type of bread. They churn out about 600 a day. It's crazy. People come here, and they come with their suitcases, fill the bread up, and, OK, we're leaving to Mexico. Oh, we're going to Florida. Oh, we're going to Texas. It's just, it's unbelievable. And that's what makes me happy, seeing party. that people love it. This is Erica Beltran, whose father, Angel, opened the bakery. And now with all this gentrification going on, I think we're opening the doors to new nationalities coming in and and trying our product, and and they love it. For Beltran, who grew up in Pilsen, this neighborhood is a part of her family's past, and she hopes their future. She says she thinks these changes are good for business for now, but she feels uncertain. I would love to stay in Pilsen. Uh, The rents are getting high, though. It's getting expensive. So I am looking to, trying to find something here and staying in the neighborhood. But if not, I will have to move. So it comes down to this. With almost 600,000 Mexican and Mexican-Americans in Chicago, there's a huge demand for Mexican bakeries. Successful bakers offer something special that distinguishes them from others. A taste, a product, a relationship that draws their customer base back time and time again. And in some changing neighborhoods... They are feeling the pressure as their old customers move away and costs rise. But as Jaime de Paulo said at the start, where there is a Mexican community, there will always be Mexican bakeries. De Paulo says it's all about loyalty. So, which bakery is he loyal to?
1: Every meeting I have in the morning, for example, I, I make sure I stop in each one of those and pick up on from each one of our members just to support them. You know? But nothing to say I do have a favorite bakery. But if I tell you, I'll kill you. I don't want nobody knocking at my door.
2: <laughs> La hija del
0: Reporting for this story came from Liz Stanton. It's been more than five years since this story first ran. And while a few things have changed since then, some job titles and such, one detail struck us. Dora Casas, the one who helped her father Abel Salceda run Panadería Nueva León, well, she's no longer with the bakery. Instead, she's moved literally next door, where she's opened a cafe right alongside her family's longtime bakery. It's called Mi Corazon Cafe Pilsen. Meanwhile, her sister Sonia Salceda has stepped in to help their father run the family (laughs) Panadería. Just ahead, we teleport back even further to 2016 when reporter Monica Ng went on a quest to track down a long-lost recipe. Stay with us. <laughs>
4: I want you to think of one of your favorite foods, one that instantly transports you to a happy memory or place in your life. Maybe a favorite holiday dish or that burger near your high school. Now imagine losing it forever. That's what happened to Nancy Rossman when Mandis the Chicken King closed more than 40 years ago. It was a place in Portage Park, a spot her dad used to take her to, and Mandis fried-up chicken so good... That it still haunts her it was a light crunchy absolutely divine chicken sold in just a neighborhood joint and it was crackly and it was crunchy and i don't think i've ever eaten chicken that tasted like theirs so nancy wrote into curious city for the recipe and other chicago favorites for me this is a huge challenge Is it even possible to reconstruct a dish that hasn't been sold in Chicago for more than 40 years and get it so close that Nancy tastes flavors she hasn't experienced since her childhood? It's not like the recipes on Google. Finding old recipes is hard. So hard, I called on the help of specialists, pros, recipe bounty hunters, Monica Cass Rogers and Bill Daly. Cass Rogers writes a blog called Lost Recipes Found. Daly's a food reporter for the Chicago Tribune, our partner for this story. Here's a highlight reel of their advice. Archives first.
1: Then talk to people who know in, in organizations like the Culinary Historians. Hey, did the restaurant really exist? Sometimes people get the names wrong. Do they have it in the right location? You can do
3: people searches.
1: You might find an obituary. The obituary might list next of kin.
3: I've actually found recipes that way.
1: And suddenly you're talking to them about, oh, your father had this restaurant 40 years ago. Do you remember this recipe? And off you go from there.
4: Okay. Archives, former workers, next of kin... Got it. Right away, this advice gives me traction. I learned that in the early 70s, the Mandis building was taken over by a Persian restaurant called Pars Cove, which later moved to Lincoln Park. That's where I catch owner Max Pars during Dinner Rush. Pars says he briefly served the Mandis-style chicken in his old location. And it was a hit.
1: On Sundays in the park, sometimes I would get maybe 150 orders. People from downtown would order, they would come pick it up. It was good fried chicken. It was good fried chicken.
4: American-style fried chicken. So good, he served it at his Persian place. But he stopped.
1: I got in trouble. We were advertising this chicken. The kids, they came back and they said, no, we cannot do it.
4: Those would be the kids of the deceased owners. And it was years ago. Maybe today they'd help me out. I tracked them down through their father's obits but heard back from just one, Ted Dukas. Dukas worked at Mandis as a teen, and he says, I'm not the first person who's come knocking for the chicken recipe.
2: When we had the restaurant, there were several people who wanted to buy the recipe and were willing to pay money. And my uncle and my father um, didn't want anything to do with that.
4: Ted and his brothers still joke about opening up a restaurant one day, so he can't spill the beans. But he does offer some crumbs.
2: Tell you this. It's not a complicated recipe. There were a couple things they did different. One thing I will tell you, and keep in mind, the restaurant started in the 1940s and back in those days when you deep fried, you used lard.
4: Lard! Right, That explains the nice aroma Nancy remembers. Dukas also confirmed my hunch that the light crust came from a batter. No chance you're going to share that full secret recipe with me. No,
2: unfortunately, I think I would be in big trouble if I did. It's it's going to stay in the family for now.
4: Ugh. Back to research. My recipe pros suggested newspaper archives. And sure enough, I find old Tribune ads where Mandis boasts about a half-fried spring chicken. But where do you find a spring chicken? And what does it even mean?
2: Spring chicken really has no meaning.
4: That's Lee Friedheim, the boss at Kugel Commission Company, where Mandis got their chickens back in the day. At that time, he says spring chicken meant a young, tender bird. But now, when chickens are full-grown at 39 days, they're all young and tender. So Friedheim suggests I get a...
2: A chicken probably weighing around three pounds, which back then they'd call it a spring chicken.
4: Next, lard. I need it from hogs raised the old way, outside, not in some factory farm. And I know just the place, Faith's Farm in Kankakee County, where I get two tubs of pastured heritage breed lard. But I also have two tips from anonymous sources. The first involves vinegar, and it throws me for a loop until I check out this online video called The World's Best Fried Chicken Recipe.
1: Here's my vinegar here. And you're going to pour that onto the chicken.
4: This cook offers the same tip: soak the chicken in vinegar and water before frying. The video says it cleans the chicken.
1: Shake that up. Want to make sure all that funk off that chicken. Get that funk off.
4: Now that we've avoided a funky chicken, I turn to the other tip: make a sour cream batter that sits out overnight. Weird, but okay. Along with Tribune cook Lisa Schumacher, we soak the chicken and vinegar in vinegar and water, dip it in sour cream and cornstarch batter, and fry it in a pot of lard. Then we invite Nancy to taste. Mm. It's good. It's really good. I think it'd be worth making. This has a lot of elements of what I remember, but... If you had that exact fried chicken, I would say I think I could pick it out, and it's not exact. I'll admit it. I'm bummed we blew it. We couldn't match Nancy's childhood memory. And I believe her. She knows her chicken. But even if we'd gotten the exact recipe, Bill Thaley warns there can still be something missing.
1: One thing I question about is, is people remember recipes, but they forget that time can make recipes very golden. And the recipe takes on this sort of aura that it's much more delicious, it's much tastier than maybe it really was.
4: So sometimes, he says, hunger for a recipe is more about a hunger to be back in that special moment in time. But not always. So, Nancy, if you want to hunt down those other local dishes, we've got a recipe finding guide at wbez.org slash There's also a video of our chicken recipe and links to Monica Cass Rogers and Bill Daly's top lost and found Chicago recipes.
0: Monica Eng first reported the story for Curious City back in 2016. She's now with Axios Chicago. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation and is produced by Jason Mark and Joe Dassault. Adriana Cardona-Magigad is Curious City's reporter. Maggie Civit is our digital and engagement producer. And I edit the show. Curious City is a production of WBEZ Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. I'm Susie Ahn. Thanks for listening.
2: time when
1: information continues to come at us faster and faster. Sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.